This is quantization. Hi, we are Arezu Talibzadeh and Kavar Shurinia, and this is our podcast on inclusion. Quantization is an independent project with support of Inclusive Design Research Center at OCAD University. Hello and welcome to the 14th episode of Quantization. The World Health Organization predicts that by 2035, more than 30% of Canadians will be over 60 years old. There is no typical definition for older adults. Frailty and cognitive decline may start at any age. There is a need for public health strategies to address the diversity and wide range of seniors. The coronavirus pandemic has shown the weaknesses and shortcomings of our systems worldwide in long-term care and senior housing. As the senior population is rising, so the number of homelessness between older adults. As the WHO mentions, although the number of surviving generations in a family has increased, today these generations more likely live separately and alone. Not having social support is one of the main reasons for homelessness among seniors. Social isolation is a big topic during COVID, which we need to address going forward. How the system needs change to adapt to the current and future needs. How financial situation, income disparity and policy affects health and well-being. How this issue addressed in long-term care settings. How personalized versus institutionalized mental health setting can be helpful. In this episode, we discuss housing for seniors and those with cognitive difficulties such as dementia with Dr. Andrea Ayaboni, a scientist at the Kite Research Institute at Toronto Rehab, and Dr. Michelle Windham West, the Graduate Program Director for Inclusive Design and the Design for Health programs at OCAD University. Andrea and Michelle, thank you both for accepting our invitation and welcome to our podcast. Let's start by introducing yourselves. Should I start? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So I'm uh, Dr. Andrea Ayaboni. I'm a geriatric psychiatrist and a researcher. I'm a scientist at the Kite Research Institute at Toronto Rehab. It's part of the University Health Network. And I'm also an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Toronto. And uh, I have a particular interest in uh, innovations in dementia care, ways that we can incorporate technology to augment the care of older adults with dementia and supporting people with dementia living uh, in the community and in long-term care, creating more de- dementia-friendly environments. Great. Uh, and it's nice. To ha- thank you for having us. My name is Michelle Wyndham-West, and I'm the Graduate Program Director for Inclusive Design and the Design for Health programs at OCAD University. I'm trained as a medical anthropologist, and I specialize in health equity, aging, gender, policy, and co-design. And I've been spending most of my time lately with a a co-design project with low-income older adults in Hamilton and uh, tracking their housing instability experiences, including uh, homelessness, and the project has extended throughout COVID as well. This is episode 14, volume 12 of Signal. Aging and inclusion, seniors, homelessness, and cognitive impairments. 
Perfect. I don't want to ask you a question. I just want this to be a conversation between you two. But I just want to tell that this is about um, basically health and inclusion. And we want to focus on the dementia and the housing issues and the gender disparity. And it goes anywhere that it can go. So I don't know which one of you want to start, but if anything comes to your mind about uh, these all of these stuff. <laughs> I, I thought that Michelle, you know, um, her research is really interesting and because there's a lot of like human stories and a lot of really, you know, real interest in, in how people live. And I, I don't know, I think it would be a good place to start if uh, if you started by talking about that project. I, that, I find that really fascinating. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, I just finished writing the first article that we're sending to publication next week. So I can talk a little bit about that, the first set of results. So over the last year, I've been doing an ethnographic project with low-income seniors uh, in social housing in Hamilton, Ontario. So uh, the city of Hamilton has been a great partner. And I went in, uh, they arranged for recruitment sessions for me, and I recruited uh, quite a variety of um, older adults, a very diverse group of people, which I was very thankful for. And I had about 24 people uh, sign up. And what we did is we gave them tablets, so both iPad tablets and Samsung tablets, depending on their preference, so that they could record their housing experiences, um, which is videos, uh, photos, and daily diaries. And I just recently in September, when I went to pick up a, uh, a Samsung tablet from one particular participant, a lovely older lady, she had uh, put in over 200 diary entries into her tablet. I mean, they have so much to say. It was wonderful. So it's a full ethnography. So we, we gave them the tablets to have this arts-based approach. And the, the rationale behind the arts-based approach is that it's participant-led data. So they get to choose whatever they're putting on their tablets. So what's significant to them? So it's trying to uh, even out the power relations in the, in the research relationship. But it also involved one-on-one uh, -on -one interviews, very lengthy interviews, which I used to do in person, but I had to switch over the phone with COVID. And also before COVID, I was doing observation. So I used to spend my Saturday afternoons in the games room or the common rooms of the buildings, just sort of having tea with the residents, which was just an amazing form of ethnographic research. So um, it was great. And I found, as I said before, people had plenty to say about their housing experiences. I was a little surprised initially to learn how many of the older adults had actually been homeless as older adults, so as seniors, so not chronically homeless. This is something that I think is really new. Um, I did some background research, some contextualization for the article that I've just finished writing, and Amanda Grenier is doing some really good research in this area, but there's not a lot of research about seniors who are recently homeless. And I really think this is an important piece to put in. And so they, they were so kind and generous and shared their stories about being homeless, about rent evictions, having difficulty um, you know, to keeping their apartments. And of course they had all found a place in social housing. So they were okay at that moment when they were telling the story because they are in rent geared to income. So it can't be more than 30% of their income, but just uh, in incredible stories. I could go on forever, so I probably shouldn't say too much, <laughs> but I did notice that because uh, uh, so you mentioned gender, there were very different trajectories, housing instability trajectories for men and women. There are very different stories in, in different sets of circumstances, but maybe I should share the floor with other people. <laughs> no, but I, I want to know more about um, like the actual housing. Was it, this was seniors housing or was it yes. more generally social housing? Yes. And so there was a real community to it. You said like yes. they're, they're having tea in the games room. That's, yes. that's really lovely. Oh, it was wonderful. And then when, when the uh, C city of Hamilton set up the recruitment sessions for me, you know, people would come. I had posters I fixed in the lobbies and, you know, not everybody signed up, which is okay. But then when I would get someone who was quite enthusiastic, they would tell all their friends 
And so then I would get get phone calls on my cell phone um, from the friends of friends of friends. I mean, I, I didn't even really have to try to recruit, which was amazing. So the sense of community was really good. It is It was very difficult, I'll say, though, in writing it up to try and keep anonymity because everyone does know everyone. So you have to be really, really careful with the stories, right? But yeah. Yeah. But and it also what also I like about this project is that that's the idea of giving them tablets. So, so we were we had a recent recent research study we were trying to do, and the um, REB came back to us and said that it wasn't feasible because we were going to be giving seniors technology. And I'm like, well, that's a little bit last century. Like, mm-hmm. you know, older adults can use tablets. There's no reason why they can't or why we can't teach them or support them in using them. And so I like that you know you were able to uh, to you know use the technology and they embraced it. That's really amazing. They did. And I had great IT support. So the IT support set it up so that they could only go on certain functions. So it was really user-friendly. And so um, how in the cognitive status of the, like, did you, was that part of, um, did you include people who had cognitive impairments of various kinds in your, in your study as well? Um, I didn't specifically ask that. That wasn't the the inclusion or exclusion criteria. But as far as I could tell, I don't think that was the case for any of the individuals. Um, They were were all very social and very clear. So I don't think so. Um, But uh, yeah, no, they were just really enthusiastic. But then I realized later after when going through the study that a lot of the seniors had already taken part in arts throughout their lives. So they were either closet novelists or uh, secret painters or, you know, they had some kind of affinity for the arts. So I think there's a self-selection going on in the sample that I didn't realize. Mm-hmm. Right. They really knew how to express themselves through arts beforehand. They weren't intimidated yeah. by that that aspect of the study, which yeah. might intimidate. But so you were saying, so the idea of um, older onset homelessness is, I think, a really interesting concept and something that I have also encountered and grappled with. And and so mostly in my experience in the context of people with cognitive impairments, so I, I come across them in the homeless system um, or um, people who are in and out of hospitals who are um, inadequately housed and um, because they are lacking the sort of um, cognitive capacity to sort of pull together and, and organize what they need to do in terms of getting themselves housing or they've lost their housing because they, you know, were forgetting their rent or not paying mm. their bills or, you know, um, things were falling apart in various ways because of some of the cognitive deficits that they had, which is, you know, um, very unfortunate. And because fundamentally, you know, they probably could have lived longer in their existing housing or been supported in those environments if it had been recognized earlier on that this was the issue that they were having. But I'm so I'm interested from your perspective, like what you learned about this um, late onset loss of housing and what the sort of um, contributors were. Absolutely. And they were very, they, there were ge- definitely gendered pathways, as I mentioned before. So for the women in this study, um, it was obviously poverty. Um, and uh, that was mostly attributed to divorce, separation, uh, leaving abusive relationships, etc. So for, for um, that particular generation, um, there's an old saying, um, women are one man away from poverty. And it sort of really worked itself out with, with, with the participants. Um, so it really was poverty. Um, there was rent eviction, though. And because Hamilton is a study is a city where rents and property values are on the rise, not to the extent that Toronto is, but it is getting very expensive here. So a lot of the um, lower income rentals, um, they're very hard to secure and keep, to, to get and then to keep. And so there's a whole process that the participants would tell me about and it's absolutely heartbreaking. Um, it has to do with bed bugs, having to spray, being taken to court for non-compliance, for not keeping their places clean, quote unquote, where they told me many stories that their places were spotless. And it sort of, it seems to be used as a tool or a trick 
to get people out of their apartments so that they can obviously renovate them a little bit and then uh, increase the rents, right? So that that's something that's going on. And, that, and it's very difficult to hear those stories. Well, difficult for them to experience them um, because it's just absolutely terrible behavior on behalf of the landlords. But so so the women, it was really poverty that led them to this this um, route and you know, leaving a relationship and not having the social network to have um, you know a, a child who lives in the city to be able to go stay with them, et cetera. So there was one participant who uh, she was homeless for a couple of months after she left an abusive marriage. And um, but thankfully, she went to her church and they were able to find her uh, a caseworker and she was then placed in the senior housing. And for the men in the study, there's also poverty as well, but more um, addiction and mental illness that they talked about. Now, of course, I haven't verified their charts and I don't have their medical histories, but this is from their information. So a lot of gambling addiction, so difficulty keeping finances and a lot of alcoholism seem to contribute. So then intermittent employment as a result. Right. I just the the thought of you know an older woman who's lived in her apartment for twenty years and has you know created a community in the building where she's lived and is so settled and has all her like life memories then to find herself evicted by her landlord um, and you know that that is quite devastating you know um, it's certainly I guess a scenario that's not that uncommon in Toronto as well I I imagine that it happens I certainly I've I've heard of it happening as well. Because I, I guess that this is where like the idea of community comes in and it's nice to hear that they've been able to create some kind of a community because these are people who have very small social networks for the most part, right? Because yeah. if they had the sort of large supportive yeah. networks around them, they wouldn't find themselves necessarily in these situations. They would have the supports they need to, well, fight the landlord or make sure their bills are being paid or, you know, like, you know, they wouldn't yes. be on the streets. And so, yeah, so the, the obviously the... So seniors with small social networks need to find communities that are like that, that are um, that that provide for a sense of of community and and support. And that's I think that's really like anyway the description of of being able to have tea with them in the common room is a lovely, um, and that they have so many friends that they can bring all their friends to come and join in the study together. I you know in the settings where I have been working recently, places like retirement homes and long term care homes, they I str- think they struggle a lot more in creating those kinds of communities in part mm-hmm. because of the cognitive status of the residents makes it more complicated to foster relationships between the residents. Um, and it's it's this weird sort of paradox, right? So like a long-term care home is full of people, you know, people all around, yeah. but it's probably one of the most lonely places on earth, you know, oh. that people all feel very alone. And particularly in the pandemic, and I've been doing a lot of work right now around this idea of um, uh, how we can, you know, protect people from an infection control perspective, create worlds that are safe, places that are safe, but that are also um, allow for social engagement, allow to maintain the social bonds because people in long-term care have so few social bonds to start off with that you've, you know, you sever those few bonds, then you've basically um, isolated them profoundly. And so that's been a real challenge because these environments, as much as we like try to make them dementia friendly and inclusive for people with various degrees of cognitive impairment we've just fundamentally not done that it's they're not dementia friendly in in many ways they don't have that culture that's what it's so the participants i kept in touch with them over covid and still in touch with them even though the study is really wrapped up and they were very isolated at the outset of the the pandemic because the common rooms were closed and the wi-fi was shut off in the buildings in order to discourage people from congregating and oh my goodness they so they cut them off electronically during that time yeah. that's a, that's not a very good policy decision <laughs> no 
No. I mean, if I didn't have my internet during the lockdown, I would have lost my mind. I mean, how would I have had my, you know, my Netflix and my, you know, that's amazing. I know. So they, yeah. uh, many, many of them have their own cell phones. And so they would text me. And so this is how, where I heard of this. And I also set up a Facebook group for them. But of course, only a few could get on it through their phones. Um, but they managed to, so, some of the women in the group um, are very regular churchgoers and their church paid for their internet connections, which was really interesting. And that made such a yeah. huge difference for them. And uh, yeah, so that has been difficult. But um, yeah, the the Wi-Fi has been restored um, in in the main floor, though. I think they advocated for that, mm. but it took a, a good six months. And are they allowed to use the common areas now? Yeah, at a distance and masked. So the, I guess they they sort of lodged a campaign and said, "Listen, we can social, we can physically distance. We understand. We know we're at risk. We're older adults. You know, we really are concerned about our health, and we can do this safely and properly." And so they finally turned it around. Yeah, that's quite disempowering, really, to be, you know, to say to them, we don't trust you to be safe with each other. We don't trust you to take care of your own health. And so we're going to create these rules and structures. And, you know, that's, you know, that it's sort of, um, you know, ideally, there would have been a more participatory kind of approach to it, right? Like, let's do yes. some shared decision making. How can we make our building more safe? What what, what would make you feel more safe or what would be more safe? And like, how can we all contribute to this? Um, and it, you know, it's, it's, um, it's amazing. Like th that's even true in places like retirement homes and, and long-term care homes, right. That we're not really giving people choices, you know, uh, even to take risks that are really tiny, um, but that are, are so um, fundamental to their um, wellness. Right. So for example, retirement homes are telling residents, they can't go for a walk around the block. Um, you know, so they're, they're really confining people within the building in, in the highest, high spreaded areas right now. People in retirement homes are able to follow, you know, simple rules. They're able to understand that they should wear masks and not stand too close to people. And that, you know, um, and so, so it was almost like, um, we're infantilizing these older adults who are in these congregate settings, you know, with the idea that I guess we're protecting the whole community, but, um, but, but really, um, not giving them any, um, any power um, or, or disempowering them in a really fundamental way. I, I agree. And that came out in the interviews, the phone interviews that I did um, because I couldn't go in person anymore in COVID. And they mentioned feeling isolated and not being a part of these decision-making processes within the building, et cetera. But they also said, you know, I've been around for a while. I have a lot of resiliency and that's not being recognized. You know, I've been through a yeah. lot. I've been, I mean, especially if you've been homeless, I mean, you know, these are really, really difficult experiences and they've overcome these experiences and they felt that that was not something that was being recognized by um, the buildings, but also by society at large in the newspapers, the, the way the, the narrative was surround old, surrounded older adults and COVID. Yeah. And I guess there's also something strange about, so these are all, this is all housing. These are people's own homes, but we still sort of treat them, especially seniors housing. So whenever we group seniors together in places like retirement homes or senior, you know, it's, 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 it becomes something different. It's not like it's their own home anymore. It's like we're housing them. Right. And, and therefore the, you know, this additional layer of control or, or, you know, anyway, I'm not exactly sure how to articulate that, but people just really forget that people who live in long-term care or who live in retirement homes, when they're in their apartment, they're in their house. Yes. Um, and that there's a, you know, a certain degree of privacy and autonomy that has to go along with that or treating them like institutions more because they're, you know, because it's full of seniors, it's an institution, not a home. Yeah. And that's a real problem. Absolutely. So is there any co-design that's going on with their activities or their groups or? Uh, at the moment, I mean, their activities and groups are really re severely restricted in a lot of these settings. And so it's a lot of 
Well, I mean, it's, it's really, it's really sad. You know, people um, who live in long-term care, there's a lot of variability in terms of how um, stimulating and um, personalized their spaces, you know, depends a lot about how they landed there and how much, again, about how, what their social networks are. Did they have family that helped them to move and help them to bring their furniture and their pictures and their, you know, um, pay for their television, pay for a telephone. And then there are people who live in long-term care who have none of that, who live in a, you know, a bare room um, without those things. And so you can imagine being confined to a space that's like that for most of your day with very little sensory stimulation at all, um, especially with recent announcements in our province that have made it clear that they are um, are kind of throwing the towel in with the pandemic. It just seems that it's inevitable that this is going to continue in a way, um, sort of for an indefinite period of time. And so, the, you know, the imperative now is like, how can we find some way to support people who are in, who are being asked to for their own protection? Which is actually, sorry, <laughs> I'm going to go get on a high horse, right? This idea of that they're being isolated for their own protection. Really, no, they're being isolated so that we can open up the restaurants, right? Like that's what that's what we're asking them to do. So the so so finding like the imperative to how do we how do we support them within their homes in a way that, you know, will give their day to day life meaning and purpose and joy and a sense of security and all of these things that people usually get from not being in their homes but being out and around people, and so. That's very, very challenging. And as you said, I guess some particular individuals have more resources than others. So they'll have their families, you know, buy them iPads and they can do all these things, but others don't. Yeah. Yeah. And in which case they're relying on the the staff in the nursing home to provide them with activities, to provide them with stimulation. And there's huge variability in from from place to place in terms of the culture, the the capacity, you know, even like things like staffing levels, um, the experience of the staff, the skill level of the staff varies enormously. The culture of the of the institution around um, how they uh, care for people with cognitive impairments and dementia. So that's a uh, because so you've you've done your study in one sort of seniors housing building there, and do you have any sense of how common that is across different kinds of seniors housing in in Hamilton? Or um... I, I I went to three different buildings. So, oh, three. Oh, great. Yes, in three different neighborhoods and three very different buildings physically, so built in different eras, and uh, it's amazing how much this space dictates the social interactions. So one of the buildings where I went for tea so often is one of the newer buildings and it's much more open and they're large, large open spaces. Right. Uh, yeah, no, the buildings are different and the space really does matter. So it would be really nice to co-design this, the common areas uh, in these types of buildings for the older adults. But what I'm curious about is, and you're mentioning the policy priorities, how, how do we, how, how does so, someone with um, your expertise and, and change the policy agenda? Like, how do we do that? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people right now who are really trying to lend their voice to advocate for seniors. And obviously, there's people doing it in all different kinds of ways. There's people who are setting, you know, legal challenges, constitutional challenges to, you know, the kinds of regulations and rules that are being put in place in terms of restricting their freedoms. And then um, there's, you know, a, a fairly decent group of um, physicians who work in these different settings who are advocating around the effect of these measures on people's health and, and mental health from my perspective. And so um, we're really seeing uh, an increase in depression, an increase in um, what we call responsive behaviors. So people um, exhibiting, for example, agitation or distress in 
variety of different ways because they um, are frustrated with with their situation um, or where they're finding themselves. Um, I've even found, you know, um, an increase in, in sort of um, psychosis. So people um, developing paranoia about what's going on, you know, that, that the staff are are some in some ways trying to harm them by confining them, you know, like they're, they're being imprisoned, for example, or that their family members have died, you know, trying to make sense of why they haven't seen their family in so long. Yeah. Um, and so, so we're, we're kind of pulling together all of this different evidence. Well, the, the other thing is the physical deconditioning. You can imagine like being left in your room for, and I, maybe this is also true of the people that you've been working with that you, when your level of physical activity drops, you know, they're, when they're not going out and walking and doing all of these things as much as they used to, then that's a, a real hazard to older adults, to their health, because they're, you know, a lot of them are, are quite precarious in, in their health. They may have some frailty. And so um, any little decrease in the amount of activity mm-hmm. they have can sort of be a tipping point. Um, so especially, obviously, the long-term care environment. So we're, we're working, we're trying to advocate, we're trying to have our voices heard at the provincial level where the decision makers are happening. But obviously, there are also some very loud voices um, from other perspectives, um, uh, you know, people who are concerned about our economy, et cetera, um, who I think fundamentally don't see the the seniors as major contributors to our economy and don't seem to care as much about them. So, um, yeah, that's it's tricky. It's it's um, it feels like a 24-7 job, also constantly responding to all of the information, the data, the policies that are being made and changed mm-hmm. on an almost daily basis and, um, um, you know, trying to bring some evidence um, and some advocacy to, you know, encourage that these decisions are made in a more rational way, in a more ethical way, in a more inclusive way. I was wondering, can we can we talk more about the design? I know without maybe <laughs> becoming too controversial, but I think that that's because um, obviously there's like design at multiple levels in terms of like just the physical structure, but also the design of like the um, the community, um, you know the the supports that are in place in these different places, the social environment. Yeah, that you can design the physical environment, but then also design the social environment. So I'm interested to hear more about that from your perspective. Um, well, it was really different. It was really interesting to see the difference between buildings and the different programs at the different buildings as well, and where the residents were more active. So I, the residents in some buildings um, almost tried to co-design it themselves, right? So there was one particular building where there's a food bank that the residents established and run. They ran, but then it was shut down because of COVID. And that really worried me because food insecurity is a huge issue and challenge with low-income seniors, right? So what was the rationale? So this is another one of the things that drives me crazy. So what was the rationale of closing a food bank? Because food banks are open in the city now. There's no reason. They're still open. So why couldn't the building have their food bank? Too much contact. So they were worried about the risk of, of spreading COVID. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like that, that this is the wrong, it's like, you know, it's not how do we, what do we need to shut down? It's how do we adapt our existing programs and services in a way that can address infection control? Um, exactly. Yeah. They could have designed a delivery service or, you know, because they know everyone knows everyone so well, they know what they eat and they have local donations. And what they were really trying to have is more vegetables at the food bank, which are expensive. So, and that was really great. So they, they know what people eat. So you're right. They could have maybe had the opportunity if they, if they had um, gone to them and said, okay, how can we redesign this for our current circumstances? And then it could have kept running because then you'll have nutritional deficits with the residents who can't get out because you're right. Some people are very active. And the seniors who are active have been going for long walks because that's a safe activity. But the others um, who I have one participant who has COPD and she's not getting out. Right. Yeah. So 
And so it becomes also like a fairness and equity issue at the level of like, we're opening the restaurants, but they can't have their food bank. Like, you know, you know, the, um, how, uh, how do we address the, the needs of the low income residents of these buildings? Um, and, and make sure that we're not overreacting or setting unnecessary barriers to them doing the community building that they need to do in the context of this pandemic. Um, cause it, it isn't that like everything is equally risky. There are a lot of things that we can do that are very low risk. And I was just doing a talk today when we, um, there's a beautiful, and I can't, I can't remember the name of the person who, who put this out, but they did this amazing illustration, which is of a, like a slices of Swiss cheese. And so the idea is that, you know, from an infection control perspective, if you just did one thing, like if you just gave everyone masks and that was all that people were doing, there'd be lots of holes in that, right? And people, but then when you do masks and hand hygiene and then add social distancing and then you're piling on the Swiss cheese and then, you know, then there aren't so many ways through, right? That you end up building up a fairly robust way of allowing people to interact. Um, anyway, so so I, I it frustrates me when I, you know, I hear that we're, we're reacting, you know, because I think that we're, what we're neglecting is that these measures that we're putting in place to prevent infections have harms in and of themselves, right? That, yes. that can be as bad as, you know, the risk of infection. Um, anyway, and so, but so this issue, this question around design, and, and so people are saying, well, we, now we need to design long-term care homes for um, infection control purposes. We need to like put in those like um, prison walls where you've got mm -hmm. like plexiglass and like, you know, so, so that people can have their visits and be protected. And we need to like make boxes in the dining hall. And I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure that that's the design solution, right, for this particular problem. Like, I guess you could hermetically seal each person into their little bubble. Um, you know, that that would be uh, infection proof. But I'm not sure we're really addressing the wider <laughs> issue of how we support our seniors through this time. Let them live. I agree. So but they probably haven't been calling in designers to do that, have they? <laughs> like call the infection control specialists. Exactly. Put plexiglass everywhere. <laughs> we we need more designers to to find a place in that system. That would be that would maybe help a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I think so, because it it's really it's about it's about fresh air and space like space and light and there are some you know really lovely long term care and retirement homes. Um, you know, that have been designed. And then there are, you know, some places that are really um, purely functional that are just there for, you know, warehousing people. Anyway, so you're right. There's a lot of money going into long-term care right now. I don't know if you've heard all the announcements from the minister that they're building, they're going to build, they're going to build. They're, so they're trying to retire all of these very old buildings that have these three and four bedded rooms that obviously have a lot of problems with them from an infection control perspective. And so they're pouring all this money and, um, and, the, and there's this like the speed behind it, which is really um, not really lending itself to some of this, you know, important information. They're, they're, you know, again, just pulling out the blueprints of the, you know, the previous 20 homes that they built and just building them again and again without really taking into consideration, I think, um, how, how we could do it better. That's definitely a lost opportunity because they should engage in a co-design involving older adults in this. And they can obviously maintain infection control as well. You can do them in tandem. It's not like they have to be mutually exclusive, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there's, I guess, so much about um, economies of scale in these things, right? That they're trying to save money by making them big and making them efficient in other ways that are not focused on the quality of life of the residents, I think. And that's a bit unfortunate. That's yeah. a bit, bit disheartening to hear.
interested to know in, in terms of your research participants, how they, um, and, and I guess, so I know that your project was about housing, but like if you got a sense of, of what gave their sort of day-to-day life meaning and purpose and, and how they, you know, uh, how, how that came across and what, what they sent you. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, one of the things that they were focused on very much is aging well, which is, was a, a phrase that they, they would use. So they would try to watch their diet within their means. They would uh, take walks outside and exercise if they could. And there's their social interactions. And as I, we mentioned before, they don't have a large social net um, because they really wouldn't have been in the, this situation if, if they had. So it's building the relationships in the building. But those can also be a bit precarious as well. Um, you know, there, there can be gossip. There was there were always uh, posts in the in the uh, tablets about the local gossip of the day, but they managed to work around that. Um, and I really do believe it was the community that that engendered a sense of meaning for them. Yeah, and so I don't know how we so even so outside of places like so that in a sense the community was. Um, supported by the fact they were all living in this building together. And they, they sounded like they probably had a certain number of shared experiences, like yes. a variety of different um, reasons. But that um, in the context of this pandemic, or and even outside of that, there are so many people out there in the community who um, are in their apartments and who are profoundly isolated um, as socially and, and otherwise. And, uh, and so I don't, I don't know what the solution is, but I, I feel like there must be a design solution for, to that as well. Like, how do we um, bring seniors um, out um, in a way that allows them to be with other people and create meaningful relationships and have, um, I feel like, and, and also contribute in meaning. Like, I think what's lovely about these kinds of research studies is that seniors love participating in research because it does give them this sense of contribution and, um, and, and I, I, yeah, and I, I really fear that we've, by sort of locking people away um, during this pandemic, we've taken that all away from them. We're not allowing them to contribute in any meaningful way to society. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't know the answer to it, but I'm not sure how we, how we fix that. Well, I, I think it's a sense of, we have to rebuild physical communities, but also virtual communities. I think there's an opportunity there as well. Um, now, what those look like exactly, I think it would depend on the situation, obviously. I have some students working on that right now. In inclusive design for their MRPs, very exciting work, um, and it's amazing what they uh, are coming up with with augmented reality and storytelling platforms for older adults to uh, to join up and find commonalities. And so, I think technology may be a way, but then of course you have the the uh, question of access, and it has to be equity driven, right? So we have to f- figure out that angle of it. It's very important. Yeah, especially when they can turn the Wi-Fi off. Uh at a moment's notice, right? Like at that. Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of like turning off the electricity nowadays. It really should be considered an essential utility to, for seniors in, in a lot of ways. I agree. Or almost a human right in a sense. I was listening to a podcast. I'm trying to remember the name of it now. It'll come to me in a moment. Oh yeah. I was listening to Reply All and they, they had done a podcast and it was just, it was an unrelated topic. It was about this phone sex line and this sort of company that had created it. Um, and as part of the talk, the as part of the podcast, the host had called in to the phone sex line and to see who we would meet there. And, um, and I, I almost, I almost burst into tears when, when this happened, but he, he came across a woman who lived in an assistant care facility in the United States. So an older woman 
who was isolated in her room um, in an assisted care facility and who had very few social contacts was using this phone sex line to just sort of reach out to the world and find out who was out there and to have those, you know, just, just she said just she would just listen sometimes just to, you know, to, to hear people's voices. And that this was um, for her, one of her few outlets, her social outlets was this, this line. Um, and so, so that was like, you know, oh my goodness, you know, how, uh, how, how sad that is and how, how much we're failing in terms of um, supporting seniors and finding these, uh, these alternatives like virtual communities. But, you know, t- telephone community would be just as, you know, seniors love their telephones. My, you know, my grandmother was over the moon when I would call her, you know, that, that we, we, we don't have to be fancy, you know, it can be, it can be super simple. Um, I agree. But I also think we have to take a step back. So the seniors who are in the, in the rent geared to income situation are actually okay and safe and secure to the point where they can tell their stories now, but it's the people in their journey to that phase that I'm, I'm obviously concerned about the participants in my study, but very concerned about the people who haven't gotten there yet. A, there are not enough spaces and they can't always find their way there. So one of the things that I'm hoping to do is a systems redesign um, with participants and with um, the municipal government and private uh, providers, rental providers as well, to try and figure out how we can, uh, and I don't have the answer yet, but a preventative systems redesign so that we can catch people before they end up homeless for the first time, right. you know, when they're an older adult, right? Yeah. And, how, and how do we how do we deal with that that segment of the population? Because they're not they're not even counted, so to speak, right? They're not even part of the record, really. Yeah, these precariously housed people. There. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, especially now. I mean, this is just the worst time to become homeless. There's so few homeless settings are obviously not adapted at all for people who are um, who are older, who have mental health problems, who have cognitive impairment, for yeah. example. And it's also when someone presents who's homeless, who has cognitive impairment, it's often a given that they get shunted into a place like a long-term care home. That's sort of, you know, what, what's thought to be the most, but if they had been adequately supported in their apartment there, you know, they may not have needed to, to, to move into that setting, you know, that, that they came to this crisis point. Like you said, there, there's, there's a lot of factors that come into what, what brings someone to a crisis when they're in the community, um, in, in their housing and so how do we intervene and identify those people earlier? But it was interesting that in your, in what you were mentioning earlier, that a number of people had actually um, found their supports through um, faith-based organizations and that, that those were kind of filling in the gaps in the sort of social support network. Um, and so then what do you, so those people who don't have those, those faith-based connections, you know, what, what, what's, what fills the holes for them? What's the substitute? Exactly. And I mean, it's great that they found that support, but the state has a role to play there as well, right? Especially for individuals who are not religiously affiliated. Yeah. Talking about the design, I just want to know that if any of you think that um, multi-generational housing can help in situation like this, because there is lots of talk about it. There is lots of project going, especially in BC, trying to bring seniors to live with the other generation, with students, with kids. Is that something that you think it may help? That was one thing that actually was really interesting about the buildings that I've been, uh, the participants live in for the study is that there are senior only buildings. So I would say about half of the participants mentioned that um, they would like to live in a multi-generational building. And I did ask what, what, why there was a gen- genesis of just the seniors buildings. And I was told that the ideology at the time was it was to protect the seniors because they were vulnerable. Yeah. 
But uh, the individuals, who, the participants who mentioned that they would like to be in a multi-generational setting, um, so they miss seeing, you know, small children running around. They miss seeing, you know, young families or, you know, they, they missed that kind of energy and livelihood and the contributions they could make in those types of relationships. So I think it's something that should be um, uh, pursued further. I think that's also the fact that it's this low income housing, that there is a, a stigmatizing of the low income people. <laughs> so this idea that somehow you, if you mix low income younger adults with older adults, that they would become victimized in some way by the the poor people. Um, I, I, I don't know if that's necessarily true that, or what, what there is, you know, but I think I agree that the that there is some value to multi-generation, but there's also this complication now, right? Which is that um, with the COVID situation, there's this idea that we have to like lock our seniors away. Um, I, I don't agree with that, obviously, um, but I think you'd find it harder to promote these kinds of multi-generational settings um, until the pandemic is is resolved because people are going to feel that we have to keep the yeah, again, it's this sort of discrimination that keep the young and vibrant and let them carry on their lives and do things that are risky. And then let's put the adults in a place, setting that's low risk away from these higher risk, younger people. And that's an, another thread of the preconceived notions of people who are older. Like if they can't use technology, they have to be protected in these ways. And all of these hegemonic conceptualizations drive policy and drive how healthcare is delivered and it's just, or care is delivered. And I think those fundamental uh, conceptualizations need to be questioned and, and uh, the uh, counter narrative needs to be created. I totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> and what is the counter narrative? So the, the counter narrative is, is, I mean, obviously generated from the seniors themselves, but it's along the lines of we're vital, we're, we have a lot to contribute. We, we can take care of ourselves. <laughs> we're resilient. You know, all, I think that's basically, you know, the information that's missing. Absolutely. And that we're strong and we have lived experience and we've overcome you know, difficult experiences. And, and uh, so we have reserves and the resiliency that you're, you're talking about. Absolutely. I think that has to be re rewritten. And maybe because we just put them all under the name of seniors and then they, we don't personalize the situation for them. So not all seniors, because of their age, they have this, they're not able to make a decision. I mean, right now, two seniors are fighting for the position of presidency in United, United States. So, and they both are capable of do run yeah. the country. So it's not about the age, right? So every, you have to look at any, any person and try to really make it not, as Andrea said, it's not, it shouldn't be an institution to run this. It should be people who have the ability to do everything so they can run it. So if someone may be an older adult, but they may be really healthy and this COVID may not really affect them physically, but mentally can affect them. So is there, we should find a way that bring that into the account uh, on the table when they make a decision in the policy, I think. I, I agree. And I think the counter narrative also has to make space for variability because you don't want to replace one set of stereotypes with another set of stereotypes, right? So you do have to show the breadth and the depth of people's experiences. And that's really important. That's difficult to craft in, in, in a public way. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think that this is one of the reasons that actually policy is held back. I think it's a it's subconscious cultural context. And until you change the cultural conceptualizations, policy actually won't really change as much as we would like it to. Yeah. Maybe bring the seniors to be a decision makers when it comes to the, making a policy for them, right? And not uh, someone, so someone who experienced it, someone who's in an older age, they can be the one who makes decision for the seniors and not someone as long, young and doesn't have any idea. 
Absolutely. I just had an article released in uh, the journal called Dementia. And at the end, very end of the last paragraph, I, I argue for policy co-design mm -hmm. and to have greater representation of lived experience at the table. And I think that would make a difference. But you have to have substantial representation. You can't just have token representation. You can't just have three or four people. It has to be a deep and engaged process. And that takes time. And, and I guess in the world of politics, people want to see results in a short period of time. And, you know, they, they don't want to really do all the work involved because co-design is work, you know, but it's good work. Um, but there's a lot of tension. It's not always an easy process. And this, the pandemic has set us back on that a lot. There's this this idea that so it's so top down right now that it feels like all um, all of the progress that maybe we had even made in this idea that you know seniors or or really anyone should be able to participate in decisions that affect them um, has has kind of been in lost in the in the haste to make decisions and be responsive and and I think well maybe that made sense in the first wave. Um, we've had a long time now, you know, we're living with this um, mm -hmm. to be more thoughtful and reasoned and, um, and include more voices. And yeah, that's not, that's not happening yet. Um, in any, no, yeah. unfortunately, and I think we really have to be on our guard to make sure that we don't regress and that people don't use this as an opportunity to leave out important voices. Yeah, same with the people with dementia. I mean, we're talking about seniors, but people with dementia may not be seniors yet. And then how we bring them into the policy making, decision making. People with dementia? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And There's um, the Alzheimer's Society has been doing a lot of great work on that recently about how um, we can involve people with dementia because obviously dementia um, is a progressive illness, but there are like there's lots of time. Um, it's a slowly progressive illness. You know, people develop. Um, symptoms um, and then may have, you know, um, go on for decades before they, you know, um, get to the more advanced stage of the illness. So, so there are lots of opportunities for people to talk about um, what's important to them and, and where they see themselves in the future um, to, you know, and, and to contribute in various ways during the early stages of the illness and, and ways of engaging people in conversations about, what's meaningful and valuable to them, what they think will be meaningful and valuable to them when they're at the later stages, which is obviously hard um, for people to, always to be able to reflect on. But I think that that we have enough information now um, from various processes to know that we can involve people, even with cognitive impairment and in, in various types of decision-making. And so I, I, I don't think there, that the cognitive impairment has to be a, even a barrier there. I've worked with a lot of really, um, really articulate and um, vocal advocates for um, uh, people with living with dementia, and uh, they're out there. Yeah, I mean, you need to keep them in the workplace as much as possible. So there should be a conversation so people don't have this stigma about dementia, Alzheimer. So if someone is diagnosed with dementia, they can still work. There may be some adjustment. Everyone has to know about that. And then if they are be open to talk about it, then it's going to be, they're going to keep them longer into the workforce so they can afford to have a house or place to live. There's, yeah, it's, it's all wrapped up in this idea of dementia-friendly communities, you know, addressing the stigma associated with having um, cognitive impairments, um, creating ways of, you know, adaptive technologies and solutions to allow people to participate fully um, in day-to-day -day life and contribute um, in, you know, whatever way is important to them to contribute. There's a lot of um, places that have signed on to this idea of creating dementia-friendly communities. And I think it's another victim of this pandemic, right? It's just, um, 
the priority has shifted to keeping people with dementia alive, you know, um, and, and it's, we're not even doing, we're not all that successful at that either. There's a, a horrible statistic. I don't know if you guys heard this, but 4% of all older adults in the UK with dementia died in the first wave. Can you imagine like wiping out 4% of a population of people? I hadn't heard that. That's terrible. Yeah. So, you know, there's huge numbers of people in their long-term care settings, for example, um, who died and also in, in other places in the community. Um, I, I don't think people really realize that there's actually a kind of um, the, the pandemic um, is actually, you know, it's killing large numbers of older adults with dementia in these congregate settings. Um, so I understand the imperative to want to make these places safe, um, but they it can't be at the cost of, of people's like quality of life, people's ability to live, you know, the average life expectancy of someone in long-term care is two years. So if you've, if you've locked them in their room for six months, they've lost, you know, um, you know, a good chunk of their remaining life expectancy. Yeah. So there's, we always say in the design community and architecture that we have to learn so much about life and design from this pandemic. So I think this is one of the things that hopefully we'll learn at least. I mean, as you said, it's not going to happen because everyone wants to make a decision right now. But hopefully we can just have a better future for um, people with dementia when they get to the older age because we know that that number is going to just go up and up as we go ahead because people live longer and dementia is still something that everyone should be concerned about. Is there um, anything else that you think we missed? I'm sorry, I'm running out of steam because I've been talking all day. Sorry. <laughs> I know. Yeah. 40 minutes is a long time to talk. So, <laughs> but it was, very, it was very interesting. And I know that we're going to put this podcast out and everyone says that, oh, this is interesting and we have to talk more about it. Always a good conversation and we don't have an answer for so many of this stuff that's happening. So who knows? We may come back and continue on it. There may be people out there who have answers, so you just need to find them and then yeah. bring them on next to answer some of these yes. questions that we brought exactly. up. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's a good idea, especially someone in policy making. Oh, that would be a wonderful idea. I'd love to listen to that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, thank you both very much. It was a very interesting uh, talk. It was the 14th episode of Quantization. We want to thank Michelle and Andrea for being part of this conversation. And we hope to hear your opinions and comments on this topic. For more episodes, information, and full transcripts, please visit our website, quantization.ca. A special appreciation to Marshall Bureau for scoring all songs. Quantization Podcast.